we have kind of a, a stripped down feel to things. And, uh, and here's the reason why in our text this morning with John chapter 19 that we're at, um, I want you to kind of think of this morning a little bit as like Good Friday service. Uh, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion of Jesus today and all the implications of that. And next Sunday is going to be Resurrection Sunday. So it's kind of like Easter in August for us uh, because we'll be looking at the, the text in, uh, in John chapter kind of 19 and 20 where, uh, where Jesus rises from the dead. And so um, usually we, we, we celebrate this uh, in Easter with, with pretty intense focus, but really every Sunday is, is about this. This is what we want to keep coming back to. This is what we are remembering. Uh, if you have your, your bulletin this morning, um, I'm just going to give a brief intro right now. So kids who are getting nervous, wondering why you're in here with this old guy talking, uh, you are going to be dismissed. We're going to do one more song, but I wanted to give just kind of a, a brief intro to some things. I called this morning Foolishness Explained, and some of you who are really good at reading upside-down words caught that on the, on the bulletin cover very simply, and, uh, and some of you needed some help with that maybe. Um, but here's what I want to say about that, is that as we look at the cross, uh, the, the, the cross is called by the Bible foolishness. It says pretty blatantly that the, that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And if you just look at the cross, it's, it's foolish. It doesn't make any sense. There's no necessary ratio that says this, then this, equals this. This makes sense to me. And yet this morning, I want to explain it. And I want to explain it carefully. I, I don't want to say that we're going to detail it and look at everything and somehow strip it of its mystery. I hope that we all cap, capture and remember that there's just mystery to this idea of the cross. In fact, we're going to sing a song in just a moment called Child of God, and it says, your blood flows down to me somehow. You know what that means? It means I can't explain it. When you ever try to share your faith with someone, and they say, well, why are you saved from your sins? And you start trying to go back 2,000 years to a cross and to blood, it's, it just gets sometimes confusing, doesn't it? And yet, right in the very midst of that word explained is the word plain. And I think the reality is, it actually is quite plain. If you see it with spiritual eyes, and if we just look to the scripture. So what you're going to hear this morning is a lot of scripture. And my prayer for you is that scripture would just wash over your mind, and wash over your eyesight, and wash over your ears, and so that it would just give you a fresh look at the cross. Foolishness, upside down, backwards. Isn't that how you feel as a Christian sometimes in this culture? You know what? That's a great thing if you feel that way. All through the centuries, Christians have felt backward in their neighborhood. They felt a little bit off. They felt, to use biblical words, strange. <laughs> Almost like aliens, in fact. Like they didn't quite belong. And if you feel that way, that's a really good thing, because this is not meant to be our home. And we're always going to appear a little bit backward, a little bit upside down from the rest of the world. The importance of this event that we're looking at this morning is, is huge. It's mammoth. And not just if you're sitting in church, not just if you take the Bible as God's word. It's huge historically. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is not a huge deal in that many tens of thousands of people were crucified on crosses. It was a very common way to die back then. But the implications of it are huge in that history itself is, is split in two over this event. 
Even if you're just a basic student of history, the sheer volume of things written about, movies put into, into print about, and things talked about and dramatized around the world, you have to look at Jesus dying on the cross. You can't be a student of history and ignore this. Spiritually, though, here's what, I, here's what my prayer is. I would venture to guess that there are some in here that as we sing about the cross, talk about the cross, talk about the covenant of, of, of blood that was bought for our behalf and all these things, that there are some that nod their head in agreement but really don't understand what we're talking about. My prayer is that just from some of the scriptures we look at this morning, it will begin to illuminate that for you. I think there are others of us, myself included, who've not only celebrated this every single year around Easter time, but we've talked about it almost every week. Because I grew up in church. And I grew up thinking about it, singing about it, reading my Bible about it. And sometimes we move too quickly beyond the cross. I really like it, Good Friday, to linger on the darkness and the depths of the cross and the pain of the cross before moving on to the good news. Or else you fall into danger of not knowing why the resurrection is such good news. And so that's what this morning's about. It's to, it's to not move on too quickly. I want to just put the lyrics of a song up that I, I think we'll do next week. Uh, this is a song that's just been kind of rocking my world for, for a while now, and I love the message of it. And parts of this this morning are going to set a tone for us. It's called The Wonder of the Cross, and it says this, Though my eyes linger on this scene, may passing time and years not steal the power with which it impacts me, the freshness of its mystery. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time, standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. If I could write beautiful music, that would be my prayer this morning for for this group of people, for us as as a church family coming together this morning. That we wouldn't lose the wonder of what we're about to talk about just because it's a familiar story to us. Here's, Here's how important it is in biblical terms. In terms of looking at the gospel, here's how important the cross is. In some ways, you could make an argument that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, use most of their gospel as some form of an introduction to the main event of what their gospel is really about. And their gospel is about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let me show you just in sheer volume of how this this pans out. Although it it only lasted one week, it's one week of the story of Jesus' life, Here's how much each gospel writer gives to it. Matthew, one quarter of his gospel goes to this story. Mark, almost a full third of the story is about this last week. Luke, about one-fifth. And John, you could, you could argue the entire book is about it. But certainly one half, almost one half of the book of John is about this last week. And John goes into great detail, making sure that we don't miss the wonder of this and don't miss any detail of this. The cross is vastly important. Here's how other New, New Testament writers, I could do a lot, I'll give you two. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Paul writing says this, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Imagine the letters being read to the church. Paul's writing and he says, what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm saying to you now, this is of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That's first important. That's the most important thing. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says this, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. If I, if, I could, if I could put it visually for you, it's this. Take all that's being talked about and let's just boil it down to one thing. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what this whole thing builds on. You wonder what new, uh, Neighborhood Bible Church is about? If I could sum it all up, that would be a pretty good summation, don't you think? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what we're going to talk about. That's what we're going to celebrate. That's what everything is, is built on with our hope. I want to have the band sing this. <clears throat> and as we do, I want you to think about this, that the story of Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, you realize that the story of Jesus isn't necessarily a success story. It's certainly not really a happy story. But really, it's a salvation story. That's, that's what the story of Jesus is all about. And so as we sing right now, child of God, children, I want you to sing this song with gusto. And as we do, as we, as we prepare to, to look at a whole bunch of scriptures of why Jesus died, let's linger and let's not miss the wonder of the cross. Starting this morning from John, onto the reading. We're at John chapter 19, verse 16 through 27. So then, because of them, he handed him over to be crucified. And therefore they took Jesus away, carrying his own cross. He went out to what is called Skull Place, which is Hebrew is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate also had a sign lettered and put that on the cross. And the inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, what I've written, I've written. And when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. And they also took his tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, hmm, let's not tear it, but toss for it to see who gets it. And they did this to fulfill the scripture that says they divided my clothes among themselves. And they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus looked down and saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Looking at the disciple, he said, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. Thanks, Lauren. Let's just pray.
God, I pray that we would honor you this morning by how we respond to by what we just heard. And as we finish it out here in a few moments and hear more of the death of your son, Jesus, God, that we would not be flippant. Lord, that we would not be forgetful. I thank you for a moment like this where believers are gathered together in one place and there's a sense of reverence and awe and wonder and just being solemn about the reality of what took place. Historically, not in a general sense, but in a very specific, real place. And Father, this morning, would you give us spiritual eyes to see and spiritual ears to hear what it is you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I just invite you to open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to John 19 and just the sermon notes as well. And um, 10 points ought to scare you, uh, but... Hopefully we'll um, we'll get through it all. But I intentionally gave you a, a book this morning because I, I want you to see the scriptures. And rather than take the time to flip all around looking for it, and uh, I can remember sitting in church and feeling a sense of shame almost that I didn't know quite where that passage was. And so you're looking around and all of a sudden the message is lost on it. I really want all the passages just right there in front of your face. And that way you can follow along with me if you'd like to as a family or as an individual. You can go and make sure I copied them right. And I would encourage, like we always do, to look to the scriptures and make sure that that what's being taught and shared as a community is truthful. Um, But I would really encourage you to to follow along. And I'll warn you right now, most often we preach kind of right through the text. And what I'm going to do this morning more is your bulletin will be the text we'll keep referring back to although it's in the context of this story. And as most of you probably already know, there's four angles on this as you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it was helpful for me to just go and actually read how Matthew recorded the crucifixion and then to read how Mark and Luke did as well. And different nuances and bits of the story are jarred into memory and say, oh yeah, that's that's where that comes in. So John isn't necessarily a complete picture, but to get all four, you begin to kind of see things. What I want to do this morning, too, is avoid um, going into all the different neat things that pastors love to go into about why the tunic was sewn and from, you know, with no seams and all this stuff, and some of which sometimes has a lot of relevance and you can really gain things from. Um, there really are some fascinating truths in here. But here's, what, here's my hunch. My hunch is that um, the Easter story, story of Jesus dying and rising again, has been dramatized It's been pictured, it's been picked apart, talked about, discussed. You can read volumes of books on this. So I think it's been well documented. If you're hungry for that, come talk to me if you don't know where to start. But there's lots of of things out there that are very biblically accurate. So instead of looking at all the different nuanced details of the story surrounding it, I told you last week that we would be looking at the why of the cross. Last week I just called it simply, Who Killed Jesus? Who put him there? 
And our ultimate answer, although there were other people that were involved and, and, and played a part, it was, it was God who put him there. God the Father who said it, it pleased him to crush the Son, to provide a way of salvation for us. And so this morning, we're just going to be looking at, at the why of, of, of the cross. And uh, John Piper's put together an excellent book that probably covers about 50 or so. I don't even know how many are in there, maybe even more. Um, but I'm just kind of giving you uh, some of, the, some of the, the maybe top reasons or ones that, that, that pop out most in Scripture. And so we'll kind of go through this. But why a crucifixion ought to cross your mind? Why did he suffer so much? I can remember as a kid being taught in youth group exactly what a cat of nine tails does to the human body. And I can remember being, being taught at Hume Lake and other speakers growing up and learning the different nuances of the suffering and, and getting the picture really clearly driven into my head. It wasn't a little suffering. It was a lot of suffering. And so the question is, Beg, why so much suffering? Couldn't it have been done a different way? And why a cross? I think the, the, the meaning of the cross, if it's not intentionally kept central, can very easily be lost on us. I can get going through my week, and if you were to ask me and just say, how important is the cross today in this moment? Isn't it true that if we're not guarded, if we're not careful, it can be somewhere off to the side somewhere? We can say it's the very central part of our life, of our marriage, of our church, of what we're about, but it can very easily kind of, kind of creep away from us. And so this morning is an attempt to say, man, let's bring that back. We certainly better not be doing it once a year at Easter or wait for a communion service to think on the cross. And yet if we're careful, it can, it can creep. Let me just read some scripture this morning, and I'll be giving you the kind of the, the, the fill-ins to the to the ten reasons. The first the first fill-in would be to to absorb the anger of God. Just listen to these scriptures. Galatians three thirteen, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Romans 3.25, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. We talked about atonement a little bit last week. Through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Circle the word justice because we'll come back to that in just a moment. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. 1 John 4.10, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Someone could rightfully come up to a Christian and ask them, why on earth is God so angry? Why is God so angry? As I read the Old Testament, there's all this wrath. Unless you think it's confined to the Old Testament, read Revelation sometime. Read different parts of the New Testament. Wrath, the intense anger of God. Why is God so angry? And that's a good question. I think the really simple answer is because he is just, which we just circled, and he's loving. And those go hand in hand. There is not a God of wrath from the Old Testament and a God of love from the New Testament. God is the same forever. So it's the same God we're talking about. And to leave off either part of that really is a completely inaccurate picture of God. Let me put it this way. If God were not just, there would be no need for the payment of wrong. So wrong has occurred. We all see that. There'd be no need for payment of wrong if God wasn't a just God. 
But if he weren't loving, there'd be no willingness for him to send his son to suffer. Think about yourself as a dad. Maybe you're a boss in here, and you are the boss of, of employees. No dad is good to his family, and no boss is good to his company if he just sweeps away wrong under the rug and doesn't deal with it, doesn't talk about it. You would look at your boss and you would say, that is an unjust boss to just sweep that under the rug. And you would be frustrated. And probably you would be angered. And no dad is doing a service to his family by just kind of, shh, let's not talk about, let's not, that's, that's confrontational, that's conflict, that's yucky, let's not talk about that, let's not go there. Let's just be loving and have fun. That would be not loving to your family. Every one of us gets this at kind of a, a microcosm level. Abuse, cruelty, perversion, injustice, discrimination, bias, inequality. These things are rampant. And if that is running rampant in your business and you're a boss that doesn't deal with it, you're not a good boss. If that's going on in your family and abuse is happening, you're not a good dad. I can tell you that right now. And so God would not be a good God would not be a good heavenly father if he were not just. But here's the great message of the Easter story. Here's the great message of what we're celebrating right here in the middle of summer. Is that God is not angry with us anymore because of Christ. In other words, to be found in Christ is to be no longer at odds with God. No longer at odds because of this payment of wrong that's going on. And that's the great news and celebration of Easter. Is that that wrath, that anger, all of that justice has been poured out on Christ. So to absorb the anger of God is number one. Number two is this, to show the wealth of God's love and grace for sinners. That's what else the cross is about. When you look at the cross, it ought to remind you of some of the truths we're about to read. Romans 5, 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us for uh, in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Underline while we were still sinners. That's a key component here. John three sixteen. Don't let the familiarity... Ruin this for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He demonstrates it in Romans 5. He gives it in Romans 3. It's an action. We see it. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Here are the two simple observations I want to make about this. You want to know the wealth of the love that God has towards sinners? Here's all you need to look at. One is the degree of suffering that Jesus went through on the cross. If you've never studied about what crucifixion is like and how you actually die and what goes on with that, you ought to go and study it. You ought to pick up a commentary or a Bible dictionary and, 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 and dive in. Go get some software and figure out what that's about. We'll cover that some more at some point here in this church. But the, the degree to which he went through to suffer for you begins to show you a comparison of just say, wow, he must really love us. Not just a little, but a lot. 
Here's the second thing I want you to pay attention to is the degree of unworthiness that you and I were in while Jesus was dying for you and for me. So the degree of suffering is one marker or measurement of how much God loves us. But then to look at how undeserving we were, none of us was so good and righteous that we pursued God first. God demonstrates it in that he loved us. And we sing a song in here sometimes called Kindness. And it's scriptural to say this, that it's the kindness of God that leads us or draws us to repentance. We don't wake up one day super smart spiritually and go, man, I've really blown it against the holy God. It's the kindness of God that woos us and draws us. God died to show us his love, not just talk about it. Number three is to make us perfect. As you look at the cross, the reason you see people crying as they look at the cross is they realize all that they have in Christ dying on the cross for us. Sometimes you ought to just sing a song or look at a cross and you ought to start taking inventory of all that you have in Christ. Hebrews 10:14 For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Colossians 1:22 But now he has reconciled you brought you together by Christ's physical body through death to present you catch this holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. There's the start of your inventory. Holy without blemish Free from accusation. First Corinthians five seven. Get rid of your old of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, which represents sin, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Here's how to keep the cross central: it's to begin to let it warp and change your identity so much that as you walk through life. You walk through life with an identity that says, I am free from accusation. I'm holy and perfect before God today, right now. All because of Christ, who made me perfect. And wouldn't it really change if you begin to live out of this basis of what you have? It's current. It's not future. It's happening right now. It's secured. It's not going anywhere. And it's a reality. We are free of sin in God's eyes. And the basis is the perfect Lamb of God that was sacrificed on our behalf for sin. And that begins to change the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we talk to one another. Instead of lashing out from an accusing voice that we can't seem to shake, We begin to take God up on his promises and say, God, I sure don't feel perfect today. You and I both know that without Christ on the cross, there would be no basis here. But I have taken to the bank that this is true. And that as we just saying, that somehow I am found perfect in your eyes because of the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And so what does that lead you to? Thankfulness, humility. No one in this room begins to develop pride that says, I'm doing a little bit more ministry than that person over there. We all look around and we are all in utter shock that we all get in on the same good deal. No matter how high or mighty, none of that even matters anymore. In fact, our gaze is is fixed 
on things eternal, fixed on the cross because of this. And it seems so petty to wonder and worry about our neighbors and how they're doing and how righteous or unrighteous they are. It also, though, lifts us up out of the miry clay, as Psalm 40 puts it. It puts our feet on solid ground that when you wake up and the accuser comes and says a real Christian would never think that way. A real Christian would never have done the things you did yesterday. You can silence your accuser because you say, who can hold an accusation against me now? I'm in Christ. Go read Ephesians chapter 1 sometime and just realize the rich wealth that you have in Christ. Number four is to give us a clear conscience. We talked about this a little bit last week, but I want to just move on from it a little bit. Hebrews 9.14. Just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from sinful deeds so that we can worship the living God. For by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sin. Here's my hunch. I think a lot of us hear that the cross affects our everyday lives, but I don't know that we really believe it. I think it makes sense in church sometimes or in the midst of a devotional time, but I don't know that we believe it. We hear that the cross of Christ will sustain us through this life, but I don't know that we really believe it. I think just in the area of our of our conscience, this is huge. Because a clear conscience affects all of us every single day, either positive or negative. If you don't have a clear conscience, it affects you. It affects your relationships. It takes a great thing like your job and it begins to spoil it and ruin it and sour it. It takes a great thing like the covenant of marriage and if there's... Shame there and unresolved sin and a dirty conscience. It begins to sour that and ruin that. Take any relationship, it does that too. The enjoyment of good things, the response to suffering and pain. You respond to suffering and pain differently if you have a clear conscience or not a good conscience. How about the sweet joy of food and rest? All of us have laid our head on the pillow and wished we had a clear conscience that night. And if it's plain to you what the cross is about, you run to the cross as your only hope in that moment. If you don't, you're left helpless with a a tossing and turning all night. Because you're not free. You have a dirty conscience. How about downtime? Downtime with a clear conscience is as sweet as you can imagine. Because you go, man, I'm a hard worker. I love the Lord. I'm serving Him. I'm walking humbly before my God. And God's given me this Saturday off to just enjoy it. Whereas if you're cheating on your work or you're not doing things the right way or you're not walking in the light as you know you ought and you're not in Christ, downtime can be sour in this way. Man, I worked hard all weekend or all week just to live for the weekend and this is what it is? Bummer. I hope for so much more. How about your career? How about worship? Don't you see how how your conscience, either positive or negative, affects really almost every part of your day? Blame, hiding, self-loathing. These are the things that people run from, and you can't get away from it because it's in yourself. It's your conscience. 
No amount of child sacrifice, hours at a soup kitchen, cutting, penance, fasting, Bible study, you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. No amount of that ever washes a conscience. I think it might kind of stunt it for a little bit and kind of gloss over it for a little bit. I feel really good. I went to a soup kitchen three weeks in a row. It genuinely is better to give than to receive. Maybe we're just you know, receiving some of the residual effects of that, but that doesn't sustain. The only remedy is, as one hymn put it, is to be plunged beneath the flow of blood that Christ poured out for us on the cross. Remember I told you this was foolishness? If you don't understand the scriptures and you don't see it with spiritual eyes, that just sounds repulsive. It doesn't sound clear at all. I want to invite the band back up right now. Every single song that we're singing this morning is very specifically focused on the cross. Several of the points I just spoke on were found in the song, Child of God. As we sing these next few songs, I just want to let more music and more truth wash over you. We've heard from the scriptures. We're going to sing in response to God right now. In just a few moments, we'll hear more scripture being read. Let's just continue in worship. 1 Peter 3.18 says that for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Number five in your notes is this, to bring us to God. The cross of Christ represents the idea of atonement. Those who were once far away because of sin have been brought near. Think about this. We've talked about some of this already so far. So much of this works in in concert with the other one. To have one of these reasons without some of the others gives you an incomplete picture. For instance, we could be justified. That means legally and right standing before God, but not be in fellowship with God. I might be declared righteous by a judge and free of sin or free of the charge, but I'm not in fellowship with that judge per se. Or for instance, we could be redeemed, which means liberated from the bondage of sin, but not shown the way to God. So now I'm wandering, homeless still, without a family, but I'm free from sin. We could have been just forgiven, relieved of the guilt, but not be with God. I don't think any of those just in and of themselves are necessarily good news. It's better news than it was before, but... Maybe not the good news of the gospel. The good news is that we've been brought near. I mean, listen to the way that the Bible describes us and God. Family terms. You are my son. You are my daughter. Bride and groom terms. The church, which is the people of God, are the bride of Christ. And then finally, he talks about it as a body. These are intimate, close, fellowship kinds of terms. I thought about it this way, that Cassie, our adopted three-year-old from China, could have been adopted by us. And we went and freed her from a life of not having a family of her own, which is a fundamental motivation 
for people who are adopting is to say no kid should be without a family. So we go over and legally, we went through some some channels and some proper things that made her legally ours. And in some sense, you could say she was freed from a life of of no family. But wouldn't it be just kind of eh, so-so news if we brought her back to the States, gave her the full rights and, and, and citizenship as a U.S. citizen, which she has, but then left her at the corner of Branham and Cherry? Said, good luck, two-year-old. You're an American citizen now. <laughs> We're your family. We'll be across town. That's just so-so news. It's not good news. It's great news to be roped into God's family and to, to be brought to God. That, that works hand-in-hand uh, hand with this next one so that we can belong to God. We're not just brought near to God, but as I already talked about, family, bride, body, we belong to God and catch this. Look at your neighbor right now, left and right, front and back. You belong to each other. We're going to celebrate communion next week. And the community of Christians ought to look like no other community on earth. There ought to be something there that a stranger walking in would just say, I cannot explain the connection between John and Dave. There's, I, I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. There's something different there. And it's because I literally belong to John Garza and John Garza belongs to me. And so even deeper than my blood relatives is my spiritual family, which will go on forever and ever and ever and ever and has been joined and united in such a way that it can't be torn apart. Romans 7, 4. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Acts chapter 20, speaking to the shepherds, he says, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So again, back to Cassie, she wasn't left at Branham and Cherry. She wasn't just brought to us, legally made right, and then left on her own, but rather roped into a family. And that's exactly the language that we're used with God. We've been invited to the table of God, to the family of God, to intimate fellowship with God because of Christ. People are delusional to think that we are free. We love to think that we're free, but we're really not. The Bible makes it plain as day. And if you look around, I think you can see evidences of this without using the Bible at all. The Bible says this, you are either governed by sin, which in that would be the self, uh, your ideals, the flesh, uh, worldly pursuits, all of that. You're either governed by that and sucking out everything this life has to offer and living for the now, or you're governed by God. And there's, there's really no other option, sin or God. And so the question for people, even those who think, I'm free, I'm my own person. Go back to the conscience for a second. They lay on their bed at night and go, why? like Paul, they say, why do I do the very things I hate doing? Romans asks a great question. Who will free me from this wretched person that I am? You're either under... Sin's rule, or you're under God's rule. And so the great question is not who am I, but whose am I? Here's number seven. To become a sympathetic 
and helpful priest. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. People of God, I, I beg of you, I implore of you, run to Christ in your time of need. That's where you find the grace. That's where you find the mercy that you're longing for. Call me second. Call your community group leader second. Call your best friend second. Talk to your sisters or brothers after that. Run to God. We have a high priest who's sympathetic for us. What difference does it make that Jesus came, suffered, died, and rose again as a perfect being? Here it is. Sympathy to us. So when we go to our high priest, he was tempted in every way. There's a great Rich Mullins song called Hard to Get, talking about Jesus. And he kind of asks this question. He says, have you forgotten just how long a night can get? And he asks that question because he reads in the Gospels that Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed by his closest friend. He knew what it was to, 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 to go through a really long spiritual desert through the night. We have confidence as we go to Christ that in prayer we can approach the one who knows our weakness And what do we find there? We find mercy and we find grace because we have a sympathetic high priest. Number eight is this, to free us from the futility of ancestry. Here's what I mean by that. Most of you didn't walk in here going, I'm glad we're covering number eight because I've got tons of questions about this. Most of you did not pray at breakfast to your dead ancestors. Let me say this. Many people in the world, ancestry worship is huge. I've talked to a ton of international students from all over Asia and different parts of the world. And I always ask, what is, what is your spirituality all about? Would you explain to me what you believe about the afterlife? Even those who say, well, we're, we're taught that, um, that there is no God. I, I, I honestly can't think of a single person, especially, I can think of people, but no international student has ever said back to me, that they hold to this when I've pressed them with this. Yeah, but what do you think? Every time they go, oh, well, that's easy. What I think is, and they'll talk about ancestor worship. They'll talk about all kinds of things and, and, and how the afterlife is going to be played out. Listen to 1 Peter 1.18. And as we read this scripture, I want you to think about a different kind of, of ancestral bondage. And that is the kind that says, you are a product of your parents and you'll never fall Uh, fall far from the tree. You'll never be free of what you have been handed down by mom and dad and by genetics and by circumstances in your upbringing. And the Bible comes along and says, let me teach you about regeneration. Let me teach you about what it is to be a brand new person in Christ. And that becomes the overriding identity. Not your last name, not what foster home you came out of, not what circumstance you did or did not have, not what your parents or siblings are like today or what they were like back in the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s that you grew up with. You're freed from that. 1 Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold 
that you were redeemed. Catch this. From the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Do you see how this is all through the New Testament and why we focus so much on the cross? So many people in almost every culture believes in a power of ancestral bondage and we call it by a ton of different things. We can think it's curses or blessings. We can call it genetic influence, wounding cycles of abuse, codependency, on and on. We can give it all kinds of titles. And sometimes people buy into that and base their identity and Jesus comes along and shatters that on the cross. He says, you are no longer held in bondage by that. And some of you in your spirit right now are going, praise God for that. Because if I was stuck with what I was handed with, I'd be in a world of hope and there'd be no hope for my future. There's no hex or genetic disposition that can hold you in bondage and that somehow is beyond the reach of the ransom of Christ. Know that. Number nine is this, so that we can die to sin and live to righteousness. Man, here is your application for the rest of your life. What if every day the rest of your life you woke up and you, and you said this? Today, God, before I get out of bed, I believe and I affirm and I know and I understand and I will walk in this reality. I am dead to sin today. Before you came and bought me and ransomed me, I had to live like a pagan. I had to live like a sinner. I had to live like a selfish person looking out for number one. I was bound to that. Today, I wake up, I am dead to sin, and I'm alive in you. God, would you just teach me what that means for today? In fact, just teach me what it means before breakfast. And then we'll take from breakfast to the drive to work or whatever's next, just moment by moment, step by step, we'll just live in this reality. And when you face temptation, you face temptation with this reality. You're dead to this. You're not chained to it. You don't have to do this. There's another way laid out for you now. We're still given choices. We're still going to blow it. But man, that gives you power, doesn't it? To walk in the reality and say, I'm alive in Christ. And there's, there's brothers and sisters tempted with this very thing all over the world. And God's promised a way of escape for me. Where's that way of escape? God, I'm alive to you. That's who I am right now in this moment. Help. He will. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then we sing this, by his wounds we have been healed. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Christ died, we die. That means that when Christ was raised, we raise to new life. Colossians 3, 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Here it is. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Number 10 is this to free us from the bondage of the fear of death 
and beyond. If you haven't been hit recently with evidence of death and evidence that this place that we inhabit is under a curse, you will brace for it. Some in this family right now are hurting and they're scared and they're worried for family members. Some have lost family members. Some are on the brink. In our book, um, I'm blanking on our Friday morning book titles. Um, huh? What? Don't Waste Your Life. Thank you. <laughs> Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. The, one of the ideas, one of the big ideas, is just that the way that you and I live, it, it adorns the gospel a certain way. And if you and I live and we fear the exact same things that our neighbor fears, how does that make Christ look? When our lips give testimony that the most important thing to us and the biggest treasure we have is Jesus Christ and the hope that we have beyond the grave, how does it look if we're as fearful in death and as worried in sickness as anyone else? Hebrews 2, 14 to 15, since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. By embracing death, taking it into himself, he destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. Man, I love how that's worded. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. In Philippians 1.21, for, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he goes on to say later, I am torn between the two. Talking about life or death. I desire to, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Let me invite the band back up right now. And as we wrap up Good Friday, darkness over the land, an earthquake that happens, people standing around the cross who actually looked up, who, who, were, who were not followers of this supposed king, and said, surely this must be the Son of God. Because they're trembling in fear and they see the signs. As we think on this dark day of the cross, we're going to end with a song of hope. We're going to end with a song that kind of looks toward next Sunday. I hope you come back and hear the rest of the story. I hope you come back and feel the rest of the story through music and through, through worship. But before we do, I want to just ask you, are you confident in death? And is that even possible? In Christ, the answer is yes. In Christ, a funeral can become a celebration of homecoming. Man, this person's finally free of this shell. I saw a shell of a man this week. A godly man who served the Lord much of his life. And I looked at his body and I was keenly aware, as he probably will pass away very soon. And we prayed over him and we reaffirmed just giving him to the Lord and asked him to make it a sweet homecoming that you judging me by what I look like is nonsense. 
Me looking at you and thinking you're the sum total of what we see is utter foolishness. This is a shell. I sat in this room with an eternal soul, a being created in the image of God. And I thought, man, there's so much more than this shell of a body that I'm seeing that's moment by moment wasting away right before our eyes. God, give me a vision for people to look beyond their hairstyle today, beyond what's going on on the outside, and to look at who they are, beyond their disability or their incredible ability. Death no longer is the worst that people can throw your way if you're in Christ. Do you know that? Man, Paul, I say this all the time, but he must have been a frustrating guy to put in prison. We're going to kill you. Cool. (laughs) Okay, we're going to keep you alive. All right, that's probably good too. I'm needed. I got to keep doing the work, but that's why we put you in prison. We're going to kill you. Sweet. I mean, you know, how do you, how do you hurt the guy? He, he's, he's not living for this world. Don't fear hospitals. Don't fear the unknown. Don't fear doctor's reports in the same way. It says that we mourn not as those who don't have hope, but as those who have hope. We want to sing right now about the amazing grace of an amazing God demonstrated, shown to us in the cross of Christ. What a joy to worship together. And uh, I would just dismiss you with that, that reality, amazing grace, unending love, and to go celebrating that. And next week, let's come back together. We're going to celebrate at the Lord's table. We're going we're gonna to take communion together as a family. And so uh, just be, be sure and come back and wrap up this kind of Good Friday Easter feel. Uh, we do have our team in Mexico gone this week. They got off safely, and um, I've, I've received no phone calls from uh, prison wardens in Mexico, uh, which is fantastic. And uh, so they all got away, so please be in prayer for them. They'll be coming back this coming Saturday, and uh, right now they're probably worshiping with George and Stacy in a, a, a bilingual church that many of you in this room have been to before. And um, so just re- remember part of our body who is not with us uh, just in, in prayer and uh, we'll, we'll be sure and get to hear from them next week so you're dismissed um, God bless you as you go and be sure and uh, just greet someone as you, as you head out see you next